Hello, Trombone Internet. This is Chris Van Hoff, assistant to the regional manager of the International Trombone Festival. We at the festival, of course, are huge fans of the pod, and we are really excited to invite you to attend this year's 2024 International Trombone Festival at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Dave Begnosh is our host. We have the world premiere of a brand new double concerto for trombone and piano with the Fort Worth Symphony. We have the American Brass Quintet. We have late night jazz featuring a Latin jam session. Like everything is happening, all the cast will be there. It's the best hang in the world, and we hope to see you there. You can register for the festival still online at www.internationaltrombonefestival.com, and it's happening the last week of May. So go register. We'll see you in Texas. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat, podcast of the Third Coast Trombone Retreat. Today on the podcast, we begin our new season by hanging out with multi-award-winning trombonist, keyboard player, arranger, orchestrator, and voiceover artist Carol Jarvis. My name is Sebastian Vera, and I'm joined by international mullet apologist Nick Schwartz. What's shaking? Well, definitely my mullet. Shaking in the <laughs> Blowing breeze. in the wind. Yep. <laughs> in that fall breeze. Yep. So, I don't know, Nick, this this might have been one of my favorite interviews we've ever done. I had only met her a couple of times and kind of knew about her from, you know, the side, but she kind of blew me away and her story is nothing short of incredible. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's an amazing story, but she also did such a good job of telling it and like it seemed like it was like her telling a story about someone else's life. She was able to deliver it in a way that was, you know, I'm emotionally. Yeah, sure. But, uh, in a way that was like very thorough and very open, which I appreciated both of those things. Cause it, it was pretty shocking just not just to go through that, but to, um, go through that while she was busy touring the world with some of the biggest pop stars in history. Yeah, so we don't want to spoil anything, but it's 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 a really special, impactful episode. Great thanks to our season sponsor, Houghton Horns. Houghton Horns aims to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. With an ownership and staff comprised entirely of professional musicians and teachers, they offer a wealth of expertise that is unmatched in the industry. Be sure to visit HoutonHorns.com where you can shop online, schedule equipment trials, consultations, repair services, and more. Visit their website at HoutonHorns.com. That's H-O-U-G-H-T-O-N, Horns.com. Houghton Horns, first class brass. So I, I got to visit the Houghton Horns showroom in Keller, Texas. If you're ever in that area, go go make the pilgrimage there. It's it's this incredible house with all these separate rooms. And I got to meet all the staff and they're all just, it's just a good energy. It's just a good vibe. And it just made me really excited that, that we're partnering with them. And you can try out a, a million different things and mouthpieces and trombones and accessories. And they're always open-minded to just, they're always just searching for the, the newest thing that people are, are going to be really into. So go, go visit them if you're, if you're ever nearby. So enjoy this episode with Carol Jarvis. Hey, look at your cool setup. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I like this space. I like it a lot. Is that like your little cave? 
It is, yeah. <laughs> Although it's quite a big cave. That's my voice yeah. studio. Voiceover studio in there. Um, okay. Which uh, before I got this place, it was the guy's beer fridge. It was like a walk-in beer fridge. <laughs> which maybe I should I mean, have kept. I was going to say, yeah. I, I don't know if that's a, a good move or a bad move on your end. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Oh, get my headphones right. Where are you coming from right now? Just outside like, London. Live, just outside London. Well, yeah. Which direction? Just west. West, okay. Awesome. Wow. Just, just beyond Heathrow. But uh, oh. yes, yesterday I went oh. to pay my respects to the Queen lying in state. Um, so... I know Philadelphia Orchestra was just there, and I know uh, Blair Bollinger added on a trip, and he's and he posted that he had to wait eight hours in in line. Yeah, it's now um, the there's a live tracker for the queue, so you know where to join the back of the queue, and wow. it's now over five miles long. No way. Oh, wow. Some people are, some people are waiting longer than I think. It, I think it's coming up to twenty four hour queue now. So what was the what was the experience like? What was the scene like there? Honestly, I, I mean, I've got shivers still. I, I still can't even put it into words. Unbelievable. Just, I mean, you've got a matter of minutes in there. Everyone just files in silent, completely silent. The atmosphere in the queue is, it is amazing. And I managed to, um, I was out by about half past eight yesterday evening. And then I started walking along the Thames all the way to get, go and get a bite to eat. And the queue was just on and on and on. But the atmosphere in the queue is amazing. But then the moment you walk in there, completely silent. And yeah, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. So if you don't mind, like explain for our, our non-British listeners. And I know there's a lot of different feelings on the Queen, obviously. I mean, a very long life. and But just like what it means and what it, what the general feeling is, is and like what she meant to you. I mean, I, I met her. I feel very honored to have met her backstage at the Royal Ballet um, after a performance. And I think, I mean, I can't speak for every British person, but I think the general feeling is it's just one in a million, more than a million. I mean, just, uh, I think everything from her, uh, everything was her actual character rather than just the duty and her job, but actually all of her characteristics of like her, I don't know, just everything she did was part of her and the amount of things where she signed your servant. So she was, she was, she looked at herself very humbly, but she just, I mean, worked tirelessly, literally. What an amazing lady she was. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. I I didn't even, I didn't even think about how you're, so you're our first um, British guest, if I'm correct, Nick. And so basically you're, you have to represent every British person ever, every British trombonist <laughs> okay, ever. So that's, that's your responsibility. You have to <laughs> speak you for, for everything. To, you tried to get me on this for ages and I'm so sorry. It's taken so long, but finally here. So thank you. Oh, you're, you're, you're a big deal. You've been big time in us. I understand. <laughs> no problem. That's our lowly podcast. No, I mean, we, we saw you, we saw you briefly at the, the International Trombone Festival. And like, every time I saw you, you were just like, off in a corner having some serious looking meeting or trying to get something done. I mean, was it like a real busy, busy time? Yeah. You know, the actual live trombone music I heard was about eight or nine minutes. (laughs) 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 And the amount of things going on at the International Trombone Festival every year in every venue constantly 
at all the time, all the same time, and I just don't get a chance to to go and actually just sit in the audience and enjoy it. So many jobs to do. <laughs> Is it? I mean, just reading about you, and I'm still getting to know you now. It's like it seems like if I if I could just infer, it, it seems like you you enjoy the being busy. Like you're you're always doing so many different things. Like does that kind of get you excited? Like you like having projects. I've always got a lot of projects on the go at once, for sure. And I think, I don't know, I say this so often that I make a living out of my hobby. So, I mean, people ask me, what is your hobby? I do it, yeah. for, I do it yeah. for a living. So It's like, yeah, I, I'm having fun every day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's the variety as well. I mean, I chose to turn down a full-time orchestral position when I got offered a job in an orchestra because the variety, well, there were, there were two reasons. I was about to go through a bone marrow transplant and also the variety. As you do. Yeah, as you do. <laughs> um, uh, but the variety I was doing, I was touring the world, doing pop tours and stuff and earning more money than a job as well. So I was like, hang on a minute, the variety, I'm my own boss and hey. And, and I just, I, like I say, the variety, it's, it's being versatile that I think has really stood me in good stead for the whole of my career and I didn't really choose to do that I just landed that that was how my my little music service started I played in orchestras brass bands big bands improvisation classes musicianship lessons composition lessons right from the word go and so I just kept that going and uh, I just feel very very lucky so yeah and we, we want to get to all that. So we, we started out in Newport Pagnell. Am I pronouncing this? Newport Pagnell, correctly? yeah. Yeah, I was just reading about it. So it's like just north of, of London. Yeah. So what's childhood like for Carol? Um, I've got an older brother. He's very, very musically talented. Um, he's a cellist. And uh, I think as the younger sibling, I was just trying to play catch up, <laughs> as you do. Just try and, oh, right, that's what I'm meant to do. Okay, I'll try and copy and uh, I remember passing some sort of music test aged 11 at school where you could test, you, you had to be able to distinguish what was sharp, what was flat. And that was basically it. And I scored the top in the whole, the whole year group. And they said, right, you can choose any instrument. Right, okay. Um, but they said, we haven't got an oboe in the school orchestra. So we want you to play the oboe, but you can choose anything, but we want you to play the oboe. Okay. Went home and asked my parents, what's an oboe? They played me some recordings. I just went, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and apparently I asked for the one that went like that. And I have no idea where I, I'd seen that. So, um, my dad got hold of this secondhand trombone and I somehow, I don't even know how, but I, I learned a couple of scales and everything before my first lesson. Turn up to my first lesson and most people are <laughs> trying to get that. And yeah, I, I just... So you're, you're an overachiever from the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just loved it. And I don't know what it was, but I just loved it and loved it ever since. I auditioned for all the music conservatoires around the UK. I got offered a place at all of them and chose to study in Manchester. I wanted to get a bit further away from home. <laughs> if, I, if I studied in London, I was like, no, it's quite close. Were, were your parents musical at all? Um, yes. Um, my dad played accordion and he he was incredibly good, really, really good. And my mum still sings in a, a sort of amateur choir. 
but they've they never played anything professionally, but they're always very good taxi drivers to all our rehearsals in the evenings. And we, we were busy, me and my brother, busy every single night of the week. And then the actual music centre was every Saturday from 8am to 3pm. And it was back-to-back rehearsals, classes and all sorts of things. And so Sunday was kind of school homework day. <laughs> and that was it. It was just... So were, were you doing like any like youth brass band stuff growing up? Yeah, there was youth brass band. There was uh, two youth orchestras. There was youth choir. There were yeah, so much going on. And then there was the county youth as well. So um, not just the local music service, but then the whole county. There's different music services within the county. And they all, all the best players come together in those ensembles as well. So the county youth brass band, county youth orchestra. So it was busy, really busy. But yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, we got through... Marla symphonies and things aged sort of 12, 13. So um, <laughs> you're learning all that stuff from the word go. It was great. Feeling like the, these deep emotional like gravitas of Mahler when you're 12. Yeah. I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I always contend that like I think because we I, I play in a brass band here um, in Pittsburgh, which is, you know, it's rare to have brass bands in America, but we have a youth brass band and just seeing the difference of a, of a young person going through youth brass band versus like a youth orchestra where, you know, you, you don't play as much, but brass band, you're constantly playing, you're constantly playing melodies. You're, you know, it's taxing, you're building endurance. I, it just seemed, I just see the growth rate. is so much faster. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Amazing. Um, actually I've got a lot of students at um, the old conservatoire where I studied and there's a, it's a real area for brass bands, the championship section, brass bands. But yeah, I mean, the technique that musicians get playing in the championship brass, brass bands is just, yeah, it's astounding. Again, you have to speak for all British players. So now you have to describe like <laughs> all brass bands. And yeah, it's like a culture there. I mean, it's like you see and tell me if I'm wrong. It's like a lot of these groups are it's not like you're you're making a living off of it. A lot of it's like you're not getting paid like a crazy amount, but people are super into it. It's super competitive. It's like the closest thing to sports we have yeah. in brass playing, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's literally like all the football league. It's it's very very competitive. But and and it's so dedicated as well. I mean, like you say, it's it's actually classed as amateur, an amateur ensemble, but the playing is phenomenal. Um the people that sort of, I don't know, flugelhorn player She's actually an accountant full time, but two nights a week dedicated. They're there absolutely rehearsing nonstop. And then leading up to the contest time, it's every night of the week, ready, getting the contest piece ready. And then it's one piece that every band comes on to play. They draw a number where they're going to play. The, the judges are in a little box so they can't see. And the bands file on and play the same piece over and over and over all day long. And there's dedicated fans as well that sit through every single band as well, playing exactly the same piece all day. Oh, man. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. It's a really amazing atmosphere. Man, I would love to see that sometime. It's incredible. Is it anything like the movie Brassed Off? <laughs> that is based on a different contest that happens every year called Whit Friday, the Whit Friday Marches. So um, every brass band has got to play a march and march down the street and, and it's it's all based in the, the area sort of up near Yorkshire, sort called Saddleworth. Um, and there's loads of different villages. It's beautiful. It's the most amazing countryside. All sort of um, dry stone walls, tiny little streets and things. 
and uh, it, it's the old sort of mining villages and things. And the, the mm. band has to march down the street playing a march. And then they arrive at the destination and then they play another march where there's different adjudicators. So you have adjudicators for the marching, adjudicators for the actual standing still march oh. as well. And again, the, the adjudicators can't see. So they're like in a, a caravan with all the curtains closed right outside where the, the bands play. Um, and, it, and then as soon as the band's finished they run back to the coach where they all climb up, get on quickly. They don't even have time to put instruments in the cases. You sit on the coach with your instrument in your hand, drive to the next village, get out, sign in, do the next contest. And it's contest after contest uh. after contest, all in all the villages. And if you, I mean, I've, I've done it with some of the uh, championship brass bands when I was a student. And uh, we were still running to get the coach Um about half past 11 at night because it all stops at midnight. You've got to keep running back to the coach, get on the coach, get to the next village to sign in before the whole thing finishes at midnight. But so you're going all day. Crazy. And and it's amazing. A lot of money can be won as well. But that's uh, Brastoff is all based around uh, the Whit Friday marches. Wow. I'm glad I asked. You need to, <laughs> you, honestly, you need to visit Whit Friday. On the uh, on the whole, the March. I can't. What time of year it is? Whit Friday. Whit W H I T. Whit Friday. Huh. Yeah, it's it's definitely one to experience. There's a lot of people that just come out and I don't know picnics and things, and they just sit on the side of the road and watch all the bands come past doing different marches. It's amazing. Is there any so beer awesome. involved? Yeah, that's what. An awful lot. Um, <laughs> it, it's not just the championship ship section brass band. It's the first section, second section, third section, fourth section. So there's hundreds of bands, and the lower down you get, sort of the fourth section bands don't take it quite as seriously. So they might do maybe two contests in all of the contests, and in between they sort of stay at the village for a little bit refreshment or ten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, back back to Carol Jarvis. <laughs> thank, thank you for our generic uh, English trombone questions. But uh, so so Royal Northern um, College of Music in in Manchester, right? And I, I I got to go there once when I was in college for like my my college wind ensemble played at the the Wasbies that were there. The oh yeah, what they're called. And I, I was blown away. I mean, I'm sure this is normal in in Europe, but like college me was like. There's a bar in the lobby of of this music school. Like, this is so distracting. There's two bars. You also oh. didn't see the other one. There's one upstairs. That that would be very hard for me to like want to go to class. You're like walking by the bar and you see all your friends in there, and you're like, well, yeah. I it was. Really I, I actually, <laughs> I did choose that conservatoire because of the atmosphere um, that I got when I, I sort of go to all the open days of all the conservatoires. And I thought I wanted to go to the Guildhall in London and obviously I got offered a place everywhere. So I had to just choose. But it was the atmosphere that struck me in Manchester. Maybe that was because of the bar. You walk straight past and it's, <laughs> it's a vibey atmosphere straight away. But yeah, I studied five years there. I was student union president one year as well. So I ran the upstairs bar <laughs> that year while uh, while I was a student. And uh, did you d when you started school, did you? already kind of have an idea that you wanted to have kind of a, a diverse career and doing a lot of different things or were you like on one kind of track already um I think yeah when I auditioned for all the conservatoires I I wanted to find somewhere where I could continue the classical the jazz the pop side of thing and composition 
because um, I was doing a lot of all of that. I was starting to write a musical before I went to study music. So I was like, right, I need Overachiever. to... Overachiever. <laughs> oh, man. I never, I never did any more of like two songs in, in the musical. I never got around to finishing it. So then that was one reason why I went to study the Guildhall, because the big band there, the classical side of things, the composition. But then when I went to the Northern, there was an awful lot of incredible sort of brass arranging courses. And I, little did I know, fast forward to uh, all the sort of pop tours I did, the amount of transcribing, arranging that I had to do on the spot quickly. I had no idea that that would come in so useful. And the big band. Being able to say yes in those situations. (laughs) I know. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, exactly. And then sort of learning on the spot as well. Um, Sure, I can do that. Yeah. Figure it out later. Yeah, the amount of times I've done that. Yes. And then the big band there was amazing. And I, I auditioned and got into the big band in my first year. So I managed to get a whole five years of being the big band. Uh, with loads of amazing guest artists. And yeah, and obviously the classical side of things, uh, I was taught by Chris Holding and Andy Berryman, who was principal trombone of the Halle Orchestra. And I got a really great balance from the two of them and John Iveson as well, who was in the uh, the LSO at the time or just retired from the LSO. And he was on the all the Star Wars recordings. So mm. I, I, the balance of those three teachers was amazing. I had the real musical side of things from Andy Chris, the technique, um, and then the opera side of things, and the actual experience from like the LSO and things from uh, John Iveson. So I, I, I think I definitely chose the right conservatoire for me. And then, I mean, my freelance work started from my first year. So I started freelancing in the Halle Orchestra, BBC Philharmonic, Opera North, Royal Liverpool Philharmonic. They're all based around the area. So a lot of opportunities. And yeah, it just sort of spread from there, really. So, I mean, yeah, it sounds like you were working from from day one. It sounds like it wasn't ever like a question, like, if you were going to make it in the music business, it was like, okay, how, where's my focus going to be? So, but, you know, as, we, as we've already kind of established, you didn't really focus on any one thing. You kind of just ran with all of it, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, before I decided to go to music conservatoire, I was... My A-levels, which were the sort of qualification before you go to university or conservatoire, I chose theatre studies, English and music. And I wasn't allowed to take art, but if I could have done, I would have done art, music, theatre studies and English because I'm very, I don't know, the sort of creative side of me. I had to drop English because I didn't have any time to do it. I couldn't keep up. And uh, I mean, the teachers at school were meant to be the musical director for all the the school productions, but they gave that job to me. So I had to teach the whole choir, had to run the band, do the arrangements, aged 16, 17, and then conduct the whole show every night. And I had no time to keep up with any English literature homework and things. And, and you already you already speak English anyway, so yeah, you exactly. don't really yeah, need to study it. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> exactly. And then I was really getting into the acting side of things. And the whole production side of putting on performances, not just the musical side of things, I found very easy. That came to me just quite naturally. I had to sort of work a bit more at the theatre. And that's what I was sort of thinking. Maybe I go into that side of things. So I think the decision I had was if I went into theatre and then came back to the trombone sort of 10 years later, opened the case, I was like, oh, I can't play it anymore. 
I'd, I'd hate that. And so I thought, right, I'll just, I'll follow my hobby and see where that goes. And so I didn't really take the trombone very seriously, probably until about my third year of conservatoire, I, I got a trial with the BBC National Orchestra Wales and principal trombone job at BBC Symphony in my third year. And I was like, ah, okay, <laughs> maybe I need to sort of start practicing. <laughs> and so that's mm-hmm. when I sort of thought, actually, maybe I could do this. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I can actually follow this into a career. And because the freelancing was just starting to build up as well. And just around that time, all the jobs started opening around the UK and sort of sort of musical chairs, people moving jobs. And there hadn't been jobs for sort of 25 years or something in the UK. And suddenly they all started popping up. And so it was the perfect time for me. And I got trials with so many of them. And yeah, and I think that's how I sort of built up my freelance work as well. So yeah, but you had a choice at that moment, like... So freelance was starting to to really build and you're in, it sounds like you're enjoying the variety of things. You're enjoying the traveling, you're enjoying the lifestyle. And, but you also have this, like, you know, you've been studying a conservatory, you know, how hard it is to get a job in an orchestra and it's, you know, the stability that comes with it. I mean, how did you weigh those options? Yeah, difficult. Um, I think I, I toured with Seal for six years. And sort of became... Yeah, I want to I want to ask about that. Okay. And it, it was, yeah, well tour for sort of six years. We'd, we'd be away on the road for sort of three months, come home, go away for another three months. And so I was away an awful lot. And I ended up, I, I fixed the horn section. And so I was doing all the horn arrangements. And then there were times when we were, we'd arrive on TV set in, I don't know, Africa somewhere. And we'd meet another, Seal would meet another of the artists and say, Hey, let's do a duet. Great. Yeah. And we're going to be live on TV in like two hours. So what should we do? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do this, do this. The MD would go, Carol, off you go. <laughs> so, okay. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Try yeah, and yeah. do the arrangement and get it all printed out and get it ready for the live TV show. So it was kind of like, I really enjoyed that kind of challenge and, and it was different. We were sort of waking up at, in a different country every day and, it was yeah absolutely amazing I, I got to fix the horn section with my three best friends and saw the world I mean it, amazing it, it was sort of, amazing and that just kept growing as well and Seal would write a different album and so the music would slightly change I ended up playing keyboards an awful lot and then backing vocals I had to really practice the backing vocals because that didn't come very naturally and then eventually I was the only backing vocalist female backing vocalist and so I, I ended up sort of singing duets with him and things. And it was... It's like, make Seal sound good. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. No pressure. Crazy. Yeah. Um, but I really enjoyed that sort of, like you say, variety again. And I was thinking, do I want to be sat at the back of an orchestra playing? I mean, I, I there's nothing against Brahms symphonies because I love doing it. And all the other repertoire, I absolutely love that. But it's kind of every time I'm in a new situation or a different situation again, I'm like my God, this is the best thing. And then I'll go, London Philharmonic will ask me to go and do, I don't know, we did a, a tour, which was Brahms 1. I was like, oh my God, this is the best thing. <laughs> and it's like everything I do, oh my God, this is the best thing. So I, I think if someone did say to me now, you've got to choose, I would find it so hard. Well, it so sounds hard. like you don't have to. Yeah. Well, hopefully, touch wood, I still don't have to. <laughs> 
So like just like just like right now, you're like, oh my god, this is the best thing. This podcast is like <laughs> it's the best, best day of my it's life. The best thing. <laughs> I mean, it, what I find amazing is like you know, you, you in the last three minutes or whatever talking about talking about being on the road with Seal, you mentioned all these different hats that you. I don't want to say had to wear because you know you probably could have drawn some boundaries and said like, Oh, that's kind of not my purview. Like that's, you're going to need to hire someone else to do that, which might've also put you out of a job who knows. But the, the moral of the story is for you, you, it sounds like you just whenever presented a problem or an opportunity, even if you didn't know how to solve that problem or where that opportunity would leave, you just said yes. And you figured it out. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. that's uh, you know, that's pretty gutsy because you know, a lot of those things are people dedicate their entire career to just being a pianist or just being a vocalist or just being an arranger or just being a trombonist. And you did all of those in, or you, and you do all of those uh, still. But so I guess my question is, how do you, how do you get so, <laughs> how do you get so good? I don't know. How do you get so vers- <laughs> versatile and and good at so many different things because you know you're not you're not just like writing arrangements for like a high school musical you're writing arrangements for like platinum record seal you know yeah i think well like i say it's i've done a bit of everything right from the word go but i don't think it's ever too late for anyone to give anything else a go i mean i was presented with we're on stage so seals dug out another tune from his past and said, uh, let's do this. Let's just bring this back into the set. I turned around to me and said, Carol, do you play bass guitar? And I was like, uh. <laughs> and I was thinking, I'm not sure I'd get away with this one. <laughs> so I had to say no at that point. But look, I've got on the wall, I've got a bass guitar. You thought guitar. about it, though. I'm not on the wall, I see about guitar. it, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and so I did start learning bass guitar. I mean, the, the, um, awesome. the keyboard player who was on the SEAL tour for a long time, he moved from, he was touring with Madonna, and he came to Seal on keys, and uh, and he was telling me the story. He was playing keys for Madonna, and she said, "Do you play bass guitar?" And he said, "Yes." And so he went and learned bass guitar literally that night, and learned all of the the whole gig. And then he was a bass player. He was the bass player on the Seal tour, and he was the most amazing bass player. But honestly, his first keyboard, first instrument, is keyboard. So it's never too late to learn these things. And I mean, like you say say yes, and then figure it out afterwards. The amount I mean, of times I, I've had that. I had a conversation just the other day with um, someone. I don't want to, uh, it's not a name. It's, it's a person here in town that's young and they're in school and they got offered an opportunity to start playing on a show on Broadway. And, but the problem is it, it required tuba. And so they immediately turned it down and they were lamenting to me, oh, you know, I don't know how to play tuba. I don't even, I don't own one. And I was just like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, it's a tuba. Like, come on, <laughs> just pick the, <laughs> yeah. the stupid thing up. You're gonna figure it out. Oh, well, where do I get one? I, I don't know. Go, go rent one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> figure when it out. So, I mean, yeah. there's such a lesson to be learned there. You know. Yeah. When there's when there's something pretty related to what you do, there's no excuse. I mean, yeah. bass guitar. It was like, hang on a minute. That's quite different to trombone and keyboard. I'm not sure I'd be able to pick that up quick enough um but now i've sort of got to grips with it i'm like hang on it's really logical it, it makes sense um but yeah i mean it's it, it's like um, the mouthpiece size is slightly different that's it i mean when i first took up the trombone my lessons 
were 20 minutes long and I had to share those 20 minutes with two cornet players. And it was a cornet teacher. I had cornet teachers up until the age of 15 or something. And eventually they said, maybe we should find you a trombone teacher just to do your grade eight. So all of the music I was learning from was cornet method books and with all the valve fingerings above the notes. And so that's how I ended up learning the euphonium. I'd never played a euphonium, Mm. but because I was learning all this music on the trombone with all the valve numbers above all the notes, I ended up learning the valves while I was learning the trombone. (laughs) And then eventually when I picked up a euphonium in college, I was like, yeah, I know how to play this because the mouthpiece is the same. And I'd, I'd learned the valves aged 11. <laughs> to be fair, though, the euphonium is the easiest instrument on the planet. So It is, yeah. You don't need to worry about the sound, do you? <laughs> it just does it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You can, you know, clench your teeth and it yeah. still comes out a beautiful sound. It's hearing a euphonium player try and play the trombone. That's fun. Oh, yeah, because they're like, oh, wow, this actually is a real instrument and it's difficult. Yeah, you've got to try and make the sound nice. <laughs> <laughs> no offense so, to euphonium. Is that, <laughs> no, 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 we mean total offense. Total offense to euphonium. <laughs> So don't you have the Euphonium Retreat um, podcast, uh, like a, a side, no? We should have like a satire podcast called the Euphonium Retreat and just like make it really stupid. Just take these like little today. snippets from every podcast where we end up talking about Euphonium. <laughs> <laughs> it's, never in a, it's never in a glowing light, I can tell you that much. <laughs> uh, so is that something that's always been within you is, is this type of, uh, you know, you're opportunistic, you're you're not afraid to, to apply yourself and, and say yes in these moments. And it takes a certain amount of confidence. Is that something that came from like how you were raised or like some experiences you've had? And I think it literally came to me while I was at music conservatoire because opportunities come and they go. You won't get all these opportunities on your plate all the time. And I say to students now, say yes to everything, everything. Because that's how you're going to build your career. It might Your first ever gig might be in a Baroque orchestra that you never even thought about. It might be in a big band and you've never played jazz before in your life. But say yes, because you never know who's going to be there. You never know who's going to be looking for someone for the next gig. And that's how my, I, I think I said yes to everything. Now I can, thankfully, touch wood still, um, mm-hmm. I can say no to some things. There's a certain time in your life where you've absolutely got to say yes, just to try and get the feelers out, get networking. Um, I hate that word, networking. But yes, me too. Yeah, but it 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 really really works. And uh, uh, but even now, there's there's things I'll say yes to, and then I sort of go, oh, <laughs> oops, <laughs> right, let's figure this out. I mean, I, I I was away with a funk group, and I had my my jazz trombone. It's up on the wall here. Just my Rath R1. And uh, I, I got a phone call saying, Carol, I need something recording for this Sony TV advert. Have you got your gear with you? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm staying in the hotel tonight, being put up. Um, send through the files. I'll get up to my room after sound check and I'll record whatever you need. Great. It's just one note. Just play it a few times and then we'll slot it in. I said, Great. Fine. Did the sound check. Went up to my room, sent the files. I was like, ah, it's a bottom D. Can't play a bottom D on this trombone. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> you don't have a valve, yeah. Uh-oh. So I was like, what am I going to do? Well, I'll just play a load of bottom E's and just move them down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> there so, you go. There we go. Put it in. No way of telling at all. You literally couldn't tell. The, the, I mean, the frequency difference, so, diff- so, so yeah. minute that actually just moving the note down 
one tone and then I sent off this file and I listened to this movie, this, this soundtrack. I was like, wow, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> and it wasn't even a pro- proper bottom D. So it was, that was another example of saying yes and then going, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, 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 going back to the idea of so this is a little bit of brain. I wanted to take this little branch off because you mentioned you hate the word networking. And I think that like when when it's being talked about, you know, like we all as professionals mention that word. And I don't think it means what students think it means. I think I think they envision like going around and like shaking someone's hand and giving them a business card and be like, nice, nice to make your nice to meet you. Put her there. (laughs) But it's like, you know, it's just through, like you said, these opportunities, your your network, your like web of connection gets bigger it's it's not necessarily out there like kissing asses you know yeah. it's it's out there actually making true connections with with people that you know they play with you they like you they like your company they like your your playing and they say oh i want this person on the next gig yeah let your playing do the talking yeah. absolutely yeah well do you know the four stages of a musician's career go on Avoid the euphonium. Avoid the euphonium. Avoid the euphonium. <laughs> no. Oh, you're oh, fitting oh, right in. Good. This is great. This is good. It's who's Nick Schwartz? Get me Nick Schwartz. Get me a young Nick Schwartz. Who's Nick Schwartz? Love it. <laughs> <laughs> so you got you got to you got to uh, strike while the iron's hot. You know, like when you're when you're young and full of energy and you know getting out there and trying to make trying to make connections that's when you got to do it and that's a, it goes back to saying yes you know and then yeah. figuring it out yeah absolutely and even if it's just like oh, i say just but there's so many amateur orchestras out there little local orchestras and even if you your first gig is that i mean quite often professionals are brought in to fill in the little gaps that they're, they're struggling and the amateur orchestras have always got a bit of a budget to be able to play the odd professional player to fill in the gaps or lead the trumpet section or whatever. So you never know who is going to actually be in that amateur orchestra either. You never know. Yeah. So for like, for like a a graduate student or someone that's still like, okay, she's done all these amazing things. Like how, what, what was like the, was there a moment or was it like a series of little moments that kind of led to, it seems like the the seal tour was one of the, the first big, big things that you got to experience. And like, what kind of got you there? Was there, was it luck? Was it you were in the right place, right time? Was it someone you met? How did you get there? I think it, it was the variety that I was doing. I was playing in sort of, uh, I'd be getting on a tiny minibus, freezing cold, no heating working, but it was to go and do big band gigs with professionals while I was still a student. And I was like, yeah, yeah I'll get on that minibus to wherever for hours and hours and hours. And the fee was never great, but um, we'd be playing in the Blackpool Tower ballroom which was just amazing and i'd be getting these big ba- these these minibus thing it's just it's kind of the commitment you you get an opportunity to go and do a season with this big band and the fee not might not be great the facilities might not be great you might not even get catering and there's all sorts of things but actually just go and do it because you love the music you love the experience and you get through so much music I'm joining. There's something romantic about that process, right? Like yeah. the grind of just like figuring out your life and figuring out Absolutely. who you are. And yeah, and um, and it, I think it was from there my name sort of started being known a little bit. And then I toured with Roy Wood for a few years. Um, he wrote, um, "Oh, I wish it could be Christmas every day." 
that one of the, the oh, biggest yeah. Christmas hits. And we used to play his Christmas tune at every gig throughout the year because it's his biggest hit. And we did so <laughs> many TV shows with him and around Christmas time, really, really busy. And from there, I ended up getting much more opportunities. And then I toured with Michael Bolton for three years. And that only came because a trumpet player and a saxophone player needed a female trombone player. And my name was thrown around by people. People recommended me when they were asking. And I literally turned up. I met them on the plane on the way to the first Michael Bolton tour to South Africa. And I was like, okay, oh, hi, man. hi, trumpet player, <laughs> hi, French, hi, uh, saxophone player. Uh, let's be a horn section. Um, Which so era of, of Michael Bolton was this? Was this? We celebrate his entire catalog. Yeah. Was it uh, When a Man Loves a Woman or was it uh, when he was getting more operatic? Um, <laughs> you know, he did. He did do. He did do that in the set. Um, uh, I think it was. It was after his major heyday. Yeah, because that was like early nineties. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, it was probably in the nine, pretty late nineties. I joined for three years, and I mean, they were amazing times. That was my first attempt at backing vocals as well. Ooh. <laughs> um, uh, so that was like okay, and then there was lots of choreography. And as a trombone player going to study at a conservatoire, you don't, yeah, you don't, you don't get taught choreography. How to look cool holding and, a trombone and also like moving. Wait, hold hold yeah, on. I don't, tough. I mean, I don't know how they do it in Manchester, but at Juilliard, we do a lot of choreography with the trombone. <laughs> yeah. Choreography class. Yeah. Joe Alessi teaches choreography, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> um, but you can imagine the, uh, the sort of um, the hits that Michael Bolton had. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. you can't just do like modern choreography to that. It's got to be the proper 80s, 90, early 90s choreography. So we're going. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all sorts of choreography. I mean, yeah. You've oh, got that to, is so good. You got to see the video of this podcast just to better see the. Uh, yeah. yeah. I imagine you're wearing very like flashy, like uh, sequin. sequin. Yes, sequins. That's where Head to toe sequins, little dress, uh, knee high boots. Yeah. A lot. That's what Nick wears all the yeah, time on his. That's what you're wearing. I I, I I can only see your t-shirt, but I can see you. You're probably wearing knee-high boots, aren't you? Of course. Oh, yeah. That's the best part about yeah. sitting at a desk. <laughs> um, so I, I have a very serious question. How would you How would you describe the difference of a Michael Bolton groupie versus a Seal groupie? Okay. Uh, wow. Hard hit. I remember there was a, a Michael Bolton gig, and ladies are still throwing bras up on stage. And I remember there was one gig he picked one up, and it was enormous. <laughs> and I think that tells you everything. But I, I tell you what, I mean, we'll probably. I'm, I'm guessing we'll get onto this subject, and it's quite a good segue. I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2004. And I was already touring with Michael Bolton and he was amazing during that time. And my cancer journey went on and on and on for a long time. When I moved to tour with Seal, I still had cancer and I was touring with Seal wow. and he was absolutely amazing as well. Both of them could have just got someone else. Um, there was one point with Michael Bolton where he actually summoned me to his room to tell him all about what I was going through. And he said, 
because I'd already exhausted too many avenues of treatments. And I started to have to Google, where can I find a cure? Where can I find treatment elsewhere? Because my prognosis was getting worse and worse and worse. And Michael Bolton wanted to know how much other treatments would cost all over the world. And he said, if you need, give the mill bill to me. And I said, oh, my God. Wow. And I, I just that sort of. Thankfully, I never needed to. Thankfully, I, I didn't ever need to. But that kind of, I don't know. And Seal was amazing. He kept me touring with him for years and years and years. And I used to have to fly home for a scan, fly back again, uh, fly home for a blood transfusion. But we, we flew over to do a tour all the way across America. And we did the whole East Coast. I got as far as Chicago and I needed another blood transfusion. So he flew me all the way home to get a blood transfusion and flew me back out again to join the tour, carry on. And they didn't need to do that kind of thing. They could have got someone else, but the support I got from them, and I toured with Sting in the middle of that as well, after some experimental drugs. And he was absolutely amazing as well. And it's kind of, and I stay in touch with all of them as well. I I class them all as really, really, really close friends because I, I, I don't know, you kind of think of these just really, really famous people. You think, surely their ego is just like, surely they're like this. Surely they're just like untouchable, but they're just human beings. And they've actually got the resources to be able to support people. And I got to know them all and they were just so, so, so nice. I'm glad my groupie question could segue to such a serious topic. <laughs> so let, let's let's start from the beginning there. So is 2004, you were, I guess, you were at, how long were you out of school at this point? Uh, two years. Yeah. Okay. So two years. Yeah. Pretty young to get such a serious mm. bit of news. Um, walk us through if you as much as you, you're comfortable sharing, of course. Um, walk us through like how you first found out and how your life changed? Uh, Well, Hodgkin's lymphoma is um, most common uh, between the ages of 20 and 30 and 50 and 60. So it hit me in my 20s. Um, And I had no idea I was ill, absolutely no idea, apart from I was getting a lot of colds, colds and coughs. And I remember freelancing in the Halle Orchestra and I turn up with another cold and the bass trombone player who used to be there, God, cow, you're still ill. You're still ill. And it was, wasn't until other people started saying, you're always ill. You've always got a cold. So, oh yeah, oh yeah, I have, yeah. And then I had a bit of a lump come up in the left-hand side of my neck. And being on the left side, I thought, well, it's just, I'm playing the trombone literally every day. I've, I had no days off at all. I was like, well, it's, it's got to be the muscles. And I was like, achy shoulder because I'm playing the trombone. So, yeah, this lump in my neck just must be related to that. So eventually I went to see a physio. And physio, I, I'd seen her a few times for like, I did my back in once. And she just took one look at this and said, yeah, I'm not going to touch that. I'm going to write a letter to your GP. And she said, have you got a good GP? And I said, uh, n- not really. So, right, can you change your address to a friend's address who's got a good GP that I recommend? Yeah, yeah, I could do that. Right, do that today. 
Okay. Right. Okay. I had no idea it was sort of urgent, but she wrote this letter and she wrote urgent on it in red. Okay. Um, this letter went to my new GP. I saw this brand new GP. She took a look at it and said, yeah, I don't like the look of that. I'm going to refer you to ears and ear, nose and throat department in hospital. And this letter said urgent. Okay. Right. Okay. Literally no idea still. And I was fine. I absolutely felt completely fine. I'm getting cold, but that's it. And I went to ear, nose and throat department. I had uh, a needle biopsy. So they were putting a needle in into this, what was a tumour, but I had no idea. And trying to get cells into the um, the needle. And I had a, a camera up my nose and down my throat. And came back two weeks later for the results. And they said, well, we can tell you we didn't get any cancer cells, so it's not cancer, but it's most likely HIV or hepatitis B or C or typhoid. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. Um, and I was thinking, right, have I got like just a few years left to live or something? I'd just, like, just sent away then. And I said, right, we'll bring you back in in a couple of weeks' time. We'll, we'll take a node out and we'll, we'll have a, a, a diagnosis then. So it's um, a long couple of weeks. Yeah, a long couple I'm of sure. weeks. So I went in for general anaesthetic. Uh, they took a node out. And then two weeks after that, I came back in and I saw the surgeon who I met just literally I was, as I was going into the operation. And I was like, why am I meeting the surgeon? It's a bit weird. And he sat me down and said, how are you doing? And I said, uh, yeah, fine. Yeah, good. Still completely no idea. I think my mum came in with me and she'd done some research. So... Yes, I think she knew what was coming, um, or roughly what was coming. And he said, uh, well, you've got lymphoma. And my mum said, which type? Is it Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's? I was like, what? What? Wow. Um, and he said, it's Hodgkin's, and we need to send you for a CT scan to see if it's spread anywhere else, and then your treatment plan will be worked out after that. It's like, right, okay. And I knew that was cancer. And I remember there being a nurse, uh, of an oncology type nurse there saying, right, we've got all sorts of leaflets and things um, you can take away with you, or we've got a room here, we can talk about it, stay as long as you like, um, we can go through anything you want to go through. And I said, no, get me out of here, get me out of here, I'm done, get me out of here. I, th I was just suddenly terrified. Um, mm. And I opened the door and left, and I didn't even shake his hand mm. or say thank you, or my mum grabbed the leaflets and, and said, sorry, whatever. And I just had to go. Um, and that was the start. And then the CT scan sadly showed that it had spread in between my lungs and it was 15 centimetres round in there. Mm -hmm. So sort of that sort of size <laughs> um, mm -hmm. in between my lungs. And I said, well, 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 well I'm, I'm a trombone player. How come I didn't know? That was there. And they said, honestly, there's so much room in there, you wouldn't have a clue. Chemo starts on Tuesday. I said, well, uh, uh, hang on a minute. What about eggs and like for kids later in life? And uh, maybe we should discuss that. And he said, chemo starts on Tuesday. Right. Okay. See you on Tuesday. And that was the start. Um, the first chemotherapy I went through was uh, a six month course every two weeks. And uh, I had it every Tuesday, every two weeks 
And the Tuesday through to Sunday, I felt absolutely like death. There were four different drugs, A, B, V, D, the, the initial of each drug that goes in. And the V, vinblastine, I mean, it sounds pretty terrible. That just wiped me out. And uh, I, all I could do was sit on the sofa for the rest of the week. And I was just doing a touring show then, Chicago, touring around the UK. And we went to Europe as well. And the fixer there said, well, if you can do every other week, come and do that. So I did. So every other week I was on tour. Um, and honestly, I, I mean, I lost my hair after, well, the first time I lost my hair, I lost my hair after one month. Uh, my hair was gone and, uh, and I lost loads of weight. I was looking really grey. But honestly, I'd get on stage because Chicago, you're on the back of the stage. And, uh, and I do Monday through to Saturday. And that lifted me so much. My hmm. spirit and you're in a performance and you just get lost in that. And you're just there in the moment. I forgot for two hours every single night. I forgot that I had cancer. And whenever anyone comes to me, and I've had literally hundreds of people come and ask, right, my mum's been diagnosed or my friend or my aunt or someone's been diagnosed, what can I do to help? I really want to help them. And I said, escape. They need an escape. Whether it's just watching a movie and getting just caught up in that, just a moment to escape all those worries and burdens, it will just bring some life back into you, give you some energy. And it just... Yeah, it's just that lift. Let you breathe again. Yeah, because I imagine the last thing you, you want in that situation is just another person to come in and be like, how are you yeah, feeling? Constantly. Like, constantly. And everyone means well. But that's uh, yeah. after just like, well, just the six months of treatment. And that was my first treatment out of, oh, I, I can't even. So many. I exhausted so many different treatments. But just in the first few months, all I was talking about was my cancer. As soon as people had found out who it was, I felt like everyone turned away to talk to everyone else about everything else to do with life. It was just like, Carol, how are you doing? Okay, we found out. Right, let's go and do something else. Mm. And I just felt like that's all I was talking about. And it's really hard to get through that. I mean... I can't even imagine. And, and what's blowing me away about this story is it, I mean, was there not any time where you took considerable time off the trombone or were you still working and playing the, throughout the whole process? Um, there were times when I couldn't, I couldn't um, totally keep up with things. And my radiotherapy, which was the, the tumors in between my lungs were really stubborn, very, very stubborn. And the radiotherapy was to there and it was a big rectangle. And I had to uh, go to a lung specialist in, in London to get his advice on this radiotherapy because it was going to get both of my lungs. And he said, uh, yep, we're definitely going to get your lungs. Um, that's going to be permanent, 20 to 25% lung damage uh, permanent. Mm. And you're just going to have to do it. I went, I'm a trombone player. And he went, Carol, this is your life. Oh, okay. Let's forget the trombone. <laughs> Let's just forget that. And I, I, I mean, that was radiotherapy. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It was, and it went like that. So it was every single day I had to be there. 
and I still and I remember I had a big band recording session. It's like ten till five, so ten till one, two till five. And I, I said to the radiotherapy department, it, "I know it doesn't take very long. Can I just like come to? Can I be there like quarter past one? Yeah, it's fine. Just be here at quarter past one." So I was, literally, everyone went for lunch. I went for radiotherapy <laughs> and I came back and carried on. And you're wild. And, yeah, and but that was me in terms of my escape, my way of carrying on, getting through it was to feel normal. I felt normal when I was playing the trombone. And yeah, the side effects and things was really hard to cope with. And I mean, I had a stem cell transplant. Obviously, I was from my own stem cells. So obviously, I was stuck in a an isolated room for that. Um, and then my bone marrow transplant, um, five years later, from a donor. Again, I was in an isolated room for six weeks. So there, there's times when I, I couldn't work obviously one of my clinical trials basically i exhausted every type of chemotherapy radiotherapy stem cell transplant and my prognosis hit literally rock bottom and my specialists were saying you need to get your head around the fact that you're not going to survive this was 2006 they started saying that and um i said but but I, i feel fine I'm I'm touring. I'm touring the well. I feel fine. What's going on? Um, and every treatment they tried, okay, Carol, this has failed as well. And so prognosis, literally rock bottom. This treatment has now failed. This treatment has now failed. This treatment has now failed. We've got nothing else. But I feel fine. What's going on? And they said, Carol, there's a tumour that's four centimetres between your lungs that is slowly killing you and we can't stop it. And that was the first time I went, ah, okay, right. So what are we doing now then? And I said, well, we're, we're going to try and find clinical trials, experimental drugs. If you're willing to sign up to these things, then we, we can give that a go. And thankfully, my oncologist, where I was being treated, I was in the biggest cancer hospital in Europe. Um, I had no idea that I studied just up the road, music just up the road, and I drove past this hospital every day. I had no idea it was the biggest cancer hospital in Europe, the biggest clinical trial centre in Europe as well. So the treatments from all over the world were coming, the trials and things were coming to this hospital. And the first clinical trial drug I signed up to, the response was good. And so my oncologist said, right, okay, this is interesting. Yes, it's failed because it's not cured you, but this is the route we need to go for you. Right. Okay. What else is there then? Well, nothing right now, but hopefully there will be. It's like, okay, quick, quick, someone invent something. And so I went through the second clinical trial drug I went through. Um, I had to, there were only three people chosen to do this trial, two people in London, one in Perth in Australia. So two of us in London, um, I went down to London to this hospital, never met this other person because I had to be uh, shut away in a lead lined room for nine days because they injected me with this highly radioactive clinical trial drug. It got wheeled, it got wheeled in, surrounded by lead. It it was just a syringe that size, but it was on a trolley. You're like, I'm going to put this in my body. It was on a trolley, huge trolley surrounded by lead to support to protect people from this syringe. They wheeled the thing in, connected it up to my 
arm and it slowly dripped in. I felt absolutely fine. Hmm. And the people that were administering this, they had to go and wait outside the door with this lead screen from like their chin down to their sort of knees to protect their organs from me. And um, they were in the doorway, like quite a long way away. And then they came back in, wheeled this thing back out again once it had gone into my system. And then I had to sit there for nine days until my radioactivity had dropped for me to be safe enough to be amongst people again. So um, a guy with a Geiger counter came to the doorway every day and held this Geiger counter at me. And I've got a video on my phone right here because I didn't believe it. I videoed this guy with this Geiger counter going on this Geiger counter. And I said, so what's a regular person like register on a Geiger counter? Like someone just walking down the street. They said it's about 0.01. I said, oh, okay, right. So what am I today? You're 65. You're not coming out. All right. Okay. Okay. So okay. you clearly have, you must have some sort of superpowers. <laughs> well, I, the, that, I mean, that, that does just um, go down and down and down. And then eventually I was allowed out. But then I had to, for the next two months, I had to keep um, two meters away from everyone. And I think another month I had to keep um, a distance away from pregnant women because I was a danger t- to everyone. So you were, you were, when, when coronavirus came around, you were ready for the social distancing. <laughs> you knew, you already knew how to do it. <laughs> but I mean, the, the crazy thing about these clinical trials is, I mean, I had no choice. I either, either said no to them and I died or I sign up to it mm-hmm. and hope for the best, but they haven't really got the results from side effects and all these things. So, and I had a, a pretty crazy side effect from that one. I came out of that isolated room i then went on tour with with sting and i i even wanted my photo taken with sting and i said look i i've got to tell you i've just had this treatment i'm not meant to come close to you had come here i said no 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 no. i have to tell you this i have to i I, I, i'm a danger right now he went i don't care come here (laughs) and have my photo but i think it was a week after the tour i started to come out with this rash that started sort of in the middle of my tummy and just spread outwards, up towards my head, down my arms, down my legs, and to the point where I was covered in this rash. I couldn't even see my skin through the rash anywhere on my body. It was just solid rash. And it was so painful. And I I went into hospital to see the specialist about this trial drug that I just had. And and I just lifted my T-shirt, just like an inch or something. And he he just sat back in his chair and went, whoa and i said uh what can you do and he said i don't know <laughs> we've never seen this before you're number yeah. 22 on this list we we've no idea it's like and he just said we guess you're kind of being sunburnt from the inside outwards oh, oh, oh my god okay nice <sighs> thank you but thankfully it just it slowly just <clears throat> it started to disappear from my tummy and spread outwards. And the, the last bit of my rash was like on my fingertips. And my, my fingertips were all bleeding. I had plasters on them all. There was like, oh. all this rash was just slowly leaving. And then once it had gone, it was like, huh. <laughs> it was just so bizarre. But then fast forward to the third clinical trial drug. And I was touring with, Sting, with Seal at that point. And uh, thankfully, we were in Europe. So I think I had four treatments and I had out of six and um, I f- they flew me back for a scan 
uh, to see how the treatment was going. And I flew back again the next day just to Paris. So thankfully it was really close. And I landed. Um, it was the kind of flights I was catching just to try and keep up with the tours was just ridiculous. There was one time I was in Moscow and I had to do two connecting flights through the night just to get to the treatment chair by 11am the next morning. And uh, the rest of the tour would carry on to the next venue and have a day off. I'd get to this chair, go, ah, right, okay, get the needle in and I'll just sit here and go to sleep. And all these people around me are like turning up for their chemo of, oh, the bus was half an hour late this morning. So I've just come from Moscow. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> um, but honestly, I went for this, this scan, landed back in, in Paris and 7.30 in the morning, I just landed and jumped in this taxi. 7.30 in the morning, and I had a phone call from my specialist. I was like, that's a bit early. It's like 6.30 in the morning over there. I'm in Paris, 7.30. This is really early. And he said, Carol, you're in remission for the first time in seven years. Wow. You've got two more treatments to go, but this is looking really, this is looking really good. I was like, I'm in remission for the first time. No sign of cancer for the first time in seven years. And I knew at that point I can't celebrate yet because a clinical trial drug, they don't know what it does. They might, you might get to remission for 10 days and it goes back. And then mm. I've got to try and find something else. And my options were getting worse and worse and worse in terms of trying to find anything to cure me. But I got to remember. And you had seven years of, of battling this, yeah. you know, staying strong through that. You, you couldn't just like allow yourself to even experience that moment, yeah. right? Were you still kind of numb? Not at all. Um, and I, yeah, definitely numb. But I also knew because they started looking for a, an unrelated bone marrow donor match for me for a few years, just in case I did get to remission they needed to find a donor. And so they, they did find a donor. They found two matches out of 11 million people. One was pregnant, so they couldn't ask her because they gave me a month time frame to decide whether to go for the transplant or not. And thankfully, this German man said yes. He was a perfect oh match. And, uh, and so after these six treatments, they gave me a month to go away and decide. They said, right, if you leave it like that, we guess you probably live for about three years, roughly. We, we guess because it'll probably come back. Or you choose to go for the transplant, but we have to talk about the fatality, um, mortality rate. And it's a 30% survival rate. So you either choose to go for this. If it works, you could live to a ripe old age. If it doesn't work, it, you could have a week, maybe a month maybe a few more months. Is it. this just from rejection? Yeah. So, and the anti-rejection drugs you're on for just over a year um, and they slowly lower that down and they, they want to introduce this thing called graft versus host disease. So the graft is the, the donor versus the host, which is me. And they want the two to fight a little bit, but you get too much of one and it doesn't work or you're dead. <laughs> And that's it. Um, so they, they, but they want to introduce a bit of it. And it comes up in like every single organ in your body has some kind of like your eyes, your fingernails, your liver, your kidney, your heart, everything responds to this. So there's all sorts of, you've got to tell them everything, even if it feels 
like my fingernails have got, gone really strange. You've got to tell them because it could be a sign and that then they need to adjust your drugs. Um, mm. It's just so, so vital to get that completely right. And it was so strange because over the years, I wasn't getting my head around the fact that they kept telling me I was dying. They kept telling me to go away and get my head around the fact that I wasn't going to survive. And so they actually sent me to a psychologist to help me get my head around the fact that I was going to die because I was touring the world. And I was just like, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't real. I'm just close the door on the hospital after that treatment and I'll go back on tour. And they were worried about that. So I did see this psychologist, amazing psychologist. And some psychologists didn't work for me because I was like, no, I don't want sympathy. I don't want any of that. If you want me to see a psychologist, you've got to find someone that's going to challenge me. And this psychologist was absolutely amazing. But when I got to this bone marrow transplant situation, I was like, right, okay, this could be the end. And I didn't realise that I had got my head around the fact that I was going to die. I didn't realise that until I got through the bone marrow transplant. And then gradually, I mean, it was from the donor, donor bone marrow transplant, your blood type has got to change to your donor's type. And normally it takes a couple of months. For me, obviously, being slightly strange, um, it took me two and a half years for my blood type to change. So throughout that time, I couldn't produce my own blood. And red blood cells, once they get down to about six, you can't breathe, you can't move because the oxygen you need to move your legs uh, is it's, it's bizarre. Until you experience it, it's really bizarre. You can't walk up the stairs. Your legs just won't actually move. You're moving so stiffly because the oxygen is not going around your body. And that was when I started the tour in America. So I did the East Coast. They topped me up right up with blood. Did the East Coast. Went as far as top, Chicago. Topped me up. Oh they did top God. me up. Every two weeks, I had a That's blood transfusion. Weird. For two and a half so weeks. Like, so like a cut on the arm could be not good. Yeah. Like that if, situation. If I didn't, Just losing any yeah, blood. If I didn't clot then, yeah. But I got as far as Chicago and my blood had got down to about six. And I was like, I'm struggling to get upstairs to the dressing room now. So that's when they booked the flight and I flew all the way back home and they topped me right up again. And then back to complete the tour. But I mean, th there were so many side effects for that. So finally I'd got to remission, but the recovery from the bone marrow transplant was two or three years because two and a half years, I couldn't produce blood. So I had blood transfusions every two weeks, kept topping me up. And they kept trying all sorts of things, including chemotherapy of all things, to try and kickstart the blood. And my, so my DNA changed, my blood type eventually changed, and it was literally overnight. And it was, I went back in for another blood transfusion, and they went, oh no, changed. Oh, what, it's done. They went, yeah, blood type's changed, DNA's changed. Off you go. Ah. Wow. Was this was this the first moment that you actually accepted that you're going to be okay? Well, that's because I'd seen. Has that ever come? <laughs> because I'd seen that psychologist to get my head around the fact that I was dying. It was then that I really started to struggle. That was my first sort of psychological start of everything I'd just been through. 
they then had to send me to psychologist again to undo all of that hmm. to to help me learn that I've got a future and it's okay to have a future and it's not scary because I was suddenly like who am I do I want to play the trombone do I want to live here I, I, I don't know what my identity is without this cancer without this like sort of I don't know safety net well it's almost like you know you'll see people who get in like a bad car wreck but they walk away from it and in that moment like a really like horrible traumatic car wreck in that moment some people are very very calm and it's not until you know an hour later that they realize what they went through and they start like breaking down yeah. you know because they realize like holy crap that, that was traumatic but it's i think it's, it's it's for some people a coping mechanism to like kind of remain calm and like it's almost like a dissociation in a way yeah yeah absolutely and i mean it was a psychologist that i saw then because i found the future so scary so daunting it was though i was i was living for a third of my life at that point um with this brick wall right there yeah that i was just sort of slowly sort of pushing away because i kept getting kept surviving and i kept living but i was like this brick wall's right there i'm gonna die soon i'm gonna die soon i'm gonna die soon but it just kept moving with me and then suddenly it was gone it was like i'd been thrown to outer space and i was like oh my god and you couldn't dare during that experience to allow yourself to be excited about something in the future, right? Because yeah. it would just be like, oh, that's not possible. So I can't be excited about these things. So you're like living, like you said, with this wall of just kind of being present, I guess, and just dealing with things. Yeah. I'm I, I, okay, Car- Carol, I mean, I have so much I want to unpack now. It's, first of all, thank you so much for, for sharing that. I mean... I, I'm blown away and it was, it's a lot longer process than I, I realized reading about it. First of all, I mean, it happened in a time in your life where most people should be dreaming about their futures, excited about their futures, figuring out things, still discovering yourself. And you hit this wall of like, holy crap, everything's changed. This might be the end. So first of all, how did you stay strong throughout this process and and was part of it just like a healthy bit of denial like you're you're saying yeah there was definitely a big dose of denial and determination and i think there's no way i would have got through it without um i think the determination i didn't i didn't really feel was there what i knew i had to do was carry on trying to feel normal so even when I was going for the clinical trial drugs, I thought, right, I'll go to the hospital, I can be a laboratory rat, and then as soon as I leave, close the door, I'm back to me again. I'll go back on tour, I'll go back and do this. And I think there was definitely a subconscious part of me that thought, right, if I'm going to die soon, I don't know when, then I better make the most of life now, quick. And so the fact that I was touring the world was perfect. I was seeing the world. I was with my three best friends. I was living it up as much as I possibly could. You can imagine a pop tour. I mean, it just, it was party, 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 but serious, proper work as well. So uh, just turn up in a new country every day. You have a few hours sightseeing, you go and do the gig, the rider in the dressing room, loads of champagne, get back on the tour bus, 
stay for, stay up for a few more drinks, go to bed, wake up in another country. And it was just amazing. And I, I was seeing the world and kind of living my life in the fast lane as fast as I possibly could and seeing as much as I could, experiencing as much as I could. When I go to sleep, I'm like, no, I can't sleep too long. I can't sleep too long because I'm going to miss everything. I was just like, mm. just cramming that life in. But I it mean, was all subconscious did, in a way as well. Did you wear yourself out at all? Uh, yeah. I mean, most of the chemotherapies and things, I was asleep. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm in a chair for a few hours now. I'll just catch up on sleep now. This is my time to rest. <laughs> now, yeah, I, I, it kind of leads me to uh, a question I was going to ask, because, I mean, the things that you were doing during this time were bucket list gigs and you know some people could only dream of doing the things that you were doing do you think that because of your diagnosis and prognosis at the time were you truly enjoying what you were doing or was it escape or was it both that's a really good question um i think i was living every moment and I remember in the thick of the treatments as well, like the bone marrow transplant was the drugs they give you to break down your immune system, to get rid of your immune system, to make way for a new one. Those drugs were so, so awful. And I've, I was in that isolated room for six weeks. And talking about living in the moment, you've got to at that point, you can't look ahead. You can't look to the next day you've sometimes got to get through the next hour and you've got to break it right down. And that was one of the best advice I got from one of the nurses. Just break it down to the next 30 minutes if you need to. Just get through the next 30 minutes. And then once you get there, take a breather, then do the next 30 minutes. And it just slowly built up again. But I think when I was in the touring the world and in between treatments and things, and again, I was just living there, there and then. And that's all I could do. I remember going back to what, what you said a little bit earlier. I remember sort of, I, I couldn't look ahead, but I, I'd get offered some gigs like two months time. I'm like, yeah, put it in the, yeah, I'm free. Yeah, I'm free. Put it in the diary. In the back of my mind, I remember sort of saying to myself, you won't be alive, then, but you put it in the diary anyway. And I remember thinking like that all the time. I think, well, you won't get there, but I'll put it in the diary because I'm free. And, and that's the way I was thinking all the time. And then when I saw this psychologist once I'd got through everything, he was amazing the way he, he talked and talked and talked and let me talk and talk. But he talked more than I thought a psychologist would do. And eventually we got to this, this point where he said, well, how did you live your life before all of this and during all of this? And I said, well, literally in the moment. And he said, people strive to do that all their lives. If you're scared about the future, you're scared about, you're daunted about, having years ahead of you, months, years ahead of you. Forget that. Just live in the now. If you know how to do that, do it now. Carry on doing it. And that's how I started getting my life back in the right, on the right path again. And even to this day, I think I still live in the now so much that I don't know, have I got ambitions? Have I got yeah, I've got lots of projects on the go all the time. And I'm busy writing another album, which I'm going to come out with some singles in the spring, hopefully, or something just quite a bit different. But I, I'm sort of 
looking ahead thinking, the spring, that's feels like quite a long way away. <laughs> and so I'm still sort of like, I've got these little projects that have got like a goal, but I don't know if I've actually got an ambition because of what I've been through in a way. I don't know. I mean, it's it's funny to to talk about, you know, a, I mean, it is a traumatic experience going through what you went through and it, 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 it it's hard to, to define it in terms of there can be gifts from it, right? Like the, the gift of perspective and the gift of, you know, true happiness. I mean, almost every religion almost teaches you true happiness is always in the present, right? And, and, and living in the present. So, I mean, do you feel like you got gifts from this experience? So many gifts. I, it sounds so strange for sort of nine and a half years going through all of that to actually thank that experience. I thank it every single day. I'm so glad I went through that. Yeah, if I could change things, I'd probably make it less than nine and a half years. It was yeah. quite a long, quite a long old journey. Less radioactivity. Yeah, yeah. Just, just like one treatment and that, that would have been nice. But actually my perspectives, you ask any cancer um, survivor, any cancer patient, have your perspectives on life changed? It's 100% yes, 100%. And my mum would even uh, even say that my personality is completely and utterly different to before mm. the cancer, because I'm just so literally open to everything, and I see the beauty in everything, literally everything, even the mundane things of every everyday life. I love it. I literally love it. Mm. It's brilliant. Uh, there, there's been a, there's been a lot of people. I don't know. It's it's an ongoing thing now. It's not like we're purposely trying it. There's been a lot of people that have cried on our podcast and you're going to be like the first person to make us cry. <laughs> um, but man, what a beautiful story. And, and it, it, want, it leads me to ask, like, are you capable or is it still a struggle to allow yourself to be optimistic about things, to, to dream about things, just, just from those instincts of having to be so protective of yourself for seven years? I think I've always been a dreamer anyway. So I think that quite, that comes naturally to me. Sort of the really creative side allows me to be so imaginative and creative and dreamy. I don't know. So I think, I think that does come naturally, naturally to me. But I think if you ask me, what's my goal? <laughs> I'm not sure not sure about that but i'm just i feel like i'm just sort of floating along and just sort of doing as many projects as i like and just maybe that is the goal yeah maybe it is maybe i get to an actual end of a project at some point i don't know um but <laughs> oh, yeah gosh. tell me about it <laughs> but i mean the uh, the music i'm writing at the moment and uh, i i hope there's going to be an end goal of that and actually produce something i've got some videos ready to go some mastered tracks ready to go but it's all got a summer vibe, so I'm gonna have to wait till the spring till I start releasing it. So, <laughs> wow, yeah. So uh, we we look forward to to checking that out once it gets released. Yeah, and I mean, and you're busy enough. I mean, you were president of the British Trombone Society, um, president of the International Trombone Festival. You're about to be president of the International Trombone Association in 2023. Y yeah, next right? summer, I think. Yeah. Oh wow, that's come around quick, Madam Madam that's President. Come quick. Yeah. So. As if you're not busy enough. I just said yes. Um, that was another thing. I said, oh, I'll, I'll figure that one out when mm -hmm. I get there. <laughs> oh, it'll be easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 
And I, I, I was listening to your, the last couple of days I was listening to your album Smile, which it's beautiful and I really enjoyed it. And it, it literally made me smile as cheesy as that sounds. So, and it, it the pro is the, is it right? The proceeds are going to the Hodgkin's yeah, there was, um, society or Macmillan cancer support. So, um, a conductor, good friend of mine came to me in two, uh, 2010, obviously right in the middle of my cancer journey. And at that point, my prognosis was literally, you're not going to survive. And he said, let's do something. Let's, let's do like a charity album. I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Sounds good. And I thought, well, it'd be something I can do to say thank you for the, the support. It's Macmillan cancer support is for the sort of, I don't know, all, all sorts of sides of the cancer, also for families and things. And my mum got a lot of comfort and help from that charity. So I wanted it to be sort of my way of thanking my mum and I don't know, thanking them for the support for my mum and, and things like that. And it's crazy looking back at it now because that was 2010 and all the musicians gave their time for free because all of them were somehow touched with cancer, their family members or or whatever the uh, the studio we got, and uh, we literally had, uh, I think I think it was two days to record sixteen tracks, and wow. um, and I was put in this little sort of broom cupboard uh, next to the the live room, and I, I was I was saying to the conductor, should I should I play along or do I record my bits afterwards? And said, yeah, just play along. Um, so we we'll be able to hear you in our cans, and then just play along, and then we'll just go from there. See how many takes we can get done. I didn't realise they recorded that, and that was the take that went on the recording. I kept, mm. came, oh, we've wow. like tried out all these arrangements. Oh, like, like let's change that string note there, the violins. I need to change that note there. Yeah, this scale here needs to be an A flat there. Blah, blah. A few bits of that during the sessions, but then we got to the last last few hours, and I said, right, can I can I record my tracks now? I said, no, that's done. Like, you already did. There <laughs> <laughs> you go. Um, and then we went straight into mixing and we had to be mixed and mastered by that night. So we stayed, stayed up till six o'clock in the morning. We stayed up through the night just to mix it all and master it. It was done. I was like, oh, I wish I'd just got another chance of actually doing a take on that. But I was going to say that the, the mixing sounds, I, I think it's, it's really well yeah, done. Just the, um, the balance of everything. The guy who mixed it, he, he passed away a couple of years ago. He was, he was a really old guy, but he'd done so many legendary BBC recordings over the years and having him on board I was like wow I mean uh, we're in safe hands um that's, that's awesome cool and so I encourage everyone if you haven't heard it to check it out you can find it pretty much everywhere it seems like Bandcamp Spotify iTunes all the good stuff Nick show should we move into the to the rapid fire section is it is it uh, safe? Uh, let's do it this sounds scary be it's, terrified. it's very scary so be very scared okay Carol Advice to your 18-year-old self. Slow down. Yeah. That's a good one. What is the best compliment you can give yourself? Oh, my God. You're loud in this moment. What, what compliment I can give myself right now? Sure. Um, you're doing great. Keep going. So you play a lot of different sessions. I imagine you have a lot of different trombones. Do you have a favorite go-to in certain situations or is it kind of just like depending on the session or do you have like a favorite instrument to play? I think I feel most natural on my 
rough R1. It's up on the wall. You can't see it. Um, I think I just feel at home on that trombone. It was a uh, Mick Mick Rath started in 1996, and I got an instrument that he made in 1996. So it's one of the very very early ones. Yeah, I don't know why, but it just literally I feel at home on that one. And I've got I've got the the large bore R4F. I've got a bass trombone um, Rath. I've got another. I can't remember what else. R three, I think it is. Um, but the R one is just like, yeah. I just feel at home. Can I can I share with you my my genius shower uh, marking idea for Wrath that I think all Wrath people should do? I think that there needs to be, like you know, like the Wrath of Khan. You know, like that that phrase. You need posters like the Wrath of Carol <laughs> and like a strong photo of you holding your trombone that's just like the easiest slam dunk marketing i could ever think yeah, of that's cool that's for that's for that's free cool. that's for free i'll tell Run mick. by mick yeah. I'll, i will tell yeah mick. tell him make that happen for me just for my i'd love it <laughs> okay carol there is a billboard that the entire world can see and you could write anything on it what would you write on it be kind she's nailing the rapid mm-hmm. fire uh, hashtag Usually, they kind. fall into the trap hashtag Hashtag, oh, okay, okay. got to stay up with the socials. See, Sebastian, right now, you're not nailing the, the rapid fire on your end. I'm blown away. I'm usually, you know, they usually do a couple quick answers, and then there's always one question that gets them, and it, it's like a five-minute thing, and that's fine. It's usually great. But she's actually, like, Taking the rapid saying true to it. Seriously. <laughs> I'm, I'm very impressed. I don't think it's very fun. I'm impressed. Yeah, one of the things I want to ask you was, yeah, what was the biggest change you made mentally or physically after after beating cancer but i think we covered a lot of that is it i mean is it something you're still waking up every day and do you is it something that's just gonna be a part of you forever that experience um i think something i really hate about it is that i can i can go a whole day without remembering what i went through i kind of hate that um you can't I, i can I can now get through a whole day, maybe longer, without remembering what I went through. But actually, I remember speaking to the uh, one of my bone marrow donor, m- bone marrow transplant specialists, and I mean, I went for the the PET scan, MRI scans, CT scans, and all those things. Going for a PET scan is where they detect the live activity of the tumors, and the people there only normally see a patient once or twice through that, their journey. And I was there every six months. And they were like, oh, it's you again. You've been coming for like six years. I was like, yeah, I'm here. I'm here again. Um, I was like, this is weird. We've never had this before. And the amount of times they, people say like, what's your NHS number? What's your hospital number? And I can recite those things like off the top of my head. They're numbers that people don't normally even know. But I, I knew all those numbers because I was in there for so long. I was part of the furniture. And my the bone marrow transplant specialist said, at some point, we want you to forget that number. We want you to forget all of this. We want you to forget these appointments, forget me, forget everyone, forget all those NHS numbers, hospital numbers. And, and I was like, but no, that's, 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 it's almost like 
that's my family at one point. It was like, I'm there more than I see my family. Mm. Um, but most but people now, don't get the opportunity to, most people don't get the opportunity to forget that number because they die. Yeah. Yeah. Or their journey is very short and they get right. through it and they survive. But I was there so long that, yeah, it was literally, like I said, it was a third of my life at one point and I didn't know who I was without it. But what I gained from all of that, my perspectives, my view on life, how I look at everything now, I'm so, so thankful I went through that. And I hate the fact that I can forget what I went through. I don't want to take it for granted. I never, ever, ever want to take that for granted because I, I feel as though I got the, less, the, the life lesson early in my life. Whereas some people might not mm -hmm. get that lesson until, I don't know, they're in their 80s or something. But I feel like I know what life is all about. Tell us if you can, can you pinpoint one most memorable or favorite, most meaningful musical experience? If you had to pick one, it's a tough one. Ooh, I think there's two. Am I allowed to choose two? Okay. Yes. Um, I think one for the pinch myself moment. And then there's one that was just like jaw droppingly magical. I think pinch my mo myself moment was on the third biggest super yacht in the world in Saint Tropez doing a gig on a helipad. Um, <laughs> and they were, it was like, yeah, I, it was just something I think I will never ever experience again just being shipped out to this super yacht. Um, and it had its own submarine. It was like just... What? Un what was it for? It was with Seal. It was the end of, okay. a, end of a tour. And it was a Saint-Tropez going home the next day, back to reality. But this was just like, oh my God, how the other half live. I mean, how do you go back to reality I know, after that? I know, that? exactly. Just so bizarre. And I think the most magical experience was recording a live dvd with sting that guy the talent is out of this world his musicality his intonation i was mm. so amazed by his singing he was playing a lute mm -hmm. um, and just before we went on stage backstage because I, I i was the the fixer for all the musicians so i fixed all the string section just backstage before we went on, on stage, we just, he was hanging out with us and he said, hey, cello, can I borrow your cello? This guy said, yeah, of course, yeah, here's my cello. And he just sat down and played a bark cello suite. It was like, wow. <laughs> this is Sting playing a bark cello suite. But honestly, his, his, you could hear a pin drop. And I know there's that, that phrase and it's just used so often, but honestly, it's the only, now I know what it means when you say you could hear a pin drop. You hear that in like, yeah, this concert, this concert, this concert, this concert. But that mm. moment was unbelievably magical. It was, yeah, he was, and still is, just phenomenal. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Okay. What do young trombonists need to be doing more of that they're not doing enough of? Two things. Saying yes and breathe. The amount of students I know that can't breathe.
properly. It's just, it's, it's like it's a, it's something that once you get there, it's like, ah, there we go. Got it. Aha, I know how to breathe. Because right. we breathe all day, every day. Like in our mm-hmm. normal lives, but actually breathing Make it complicated. right for trombone playing is, I, I didn't get it for years, but when you get it, it's just, there we go, light bulb moment. It's, and so many students don't know how to breathe properly. There's, there's literally, I like telling students, there's literally nothing you have practiced more in your life than this, and you're overcomplicating it by... <laughs> Like all these things you're trying to do and overthink, but yeah, that's, that's a good answer. We've never had breathe, learn how to breathe. That's, it's that's just, a good it's, one. it's making like the breath you need to play the trombone. It's making that natural, a natural habit so that you don't have to think, right, I need to take a big breath. <laughs> I don't need right, to think, right. I need to breathe here, I need to breathe there, I need to breathe there, I need to feel every little bit. Don't lift shoulders, all that. And making it natural mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that every time you pick up the trombone, every phrase, you always do that. You've got to make it a habit so that you don't have to tell yourself, oh, I must take a deep breath. Yeah. And stu- students just don't do that. It's like, I'm going to take this measly little tiny breath and then wonder why I couldn't get through the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me, I've been there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Carol, you are absolutely amazing. Thank you for hanging out with us and sharing your story. And, you know, as I had, my mother went through um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and just just hearing what you've done for it and, and ev- everything is just truly inspiring. And I know she can't wait to hear your story. So thanks for, for spending the time with us. And we're, we're so excited for your career and so excited for what's next and look forward to hearing what's next. But yeah, thank you, Carol. It was amazing. Thank you so much. It, it was a, such a pleasure to see you guys at the ITF, even though I was dashing around like a mad, crazy fool. Um, and yeah, I hopefully, will I see you, Nick, in New York? Sebastian, you're not going to be there, are you? I'll be there next month, but hopefully I'll catch up with you anyway. I'll, I'll, look, I'll look back at the dates you sent. If it'd, be, it'd be great to grab a pint or something. Great. Love it. Oh, that's the day before we go on yeah. our, our trombone retreat retreat. Retreat, retreat. <laughs> Yeah, we're going up to the having a up to the Catskills, like two hours away uh, from here, just to kind of isolate and do, done. take care of some business for the trombone retreat that we I, run. I know, I know all about isolation. Um, yeah, yeah, you do. <laughs> I, I think I'd be a, a, a very good asset at your retreat someday. <laughs> oh well, man, come hang out! <laughs> love I'd, it. Come hang out! I'd love to just hang out. Yeah, that's pretty much what we're going to do the majority of the well, time. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Carol. Really appreciate it. It's an absolute honor. Absolutely. Thank you for persevering and getting me on. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Well, how about that? Wow, what an incredible story, huh? I mean, man, I I was serious, like, where the the guest is usually one that's crying and she was like she was making me feel my feelings oh, there. Yeah. Oh, Man, I I just I I I had no clue. I mean, I had heard some stories about that, you know, a lot of there's a lot of cancer stories, you know, and I'm not trying to minimize that. But I I heard she had gone through something, but I didn't know the extent and the extent was like so much more than I could have even imagined, especially, you know, most of the time when you hear people talk about going to like Okay, we we have to try experimental therapies now. Like 
that's when you start to think, okay, it's kind of over at this point. And she, it actually worked out for her. And, and the thing that the, the thing that floored me the most, I think about the interview was when she was talking about that she had to learn how to live again. Like she had to learn how to be optimistic about life again. That, that almost broke me. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, for so long, for s- such a long period of her adult life, she was waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, it's like, okay, what next? What, what's going to come and get me now? And yeah, the experimental drug thing, you know, I went through that with my dad and when those words came out, it was like, uh, we actually didn't do it because it was like the experimental medicine came with all sorts of side effects and the risks, risk to reward uh, ratio was just in the wrong direction. And that's usually what you hear about these experimental therapies is that, you know, it's experimental for re- one of various reasons, but one is usually it's like, this is kind of uh, a hail Mary of sorts. So yeah, that, that, that was a very poignant moment. She kind of said it so in, pa- in passing, like, oh yeah. And then we, then we were doing experimental treatments and then we were doing this and talking about being on the road and flying back in between shows to go get like a blood transfusion. It's like, <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, most people, I think most people wouldn't survive that, not just because of the severity of the illness, but there's so much to be said about your outlook. And, you know, they talk about, people talk about how people handle being sick and how some people uh, are handle it with grace and other people don't handle it with grace, you know, but that really contributes a lot, I think, to how you can overcome uh, such an illness. I think you have to have a a positive outlook and you have to remain hopeful. Yeah. That that makes me think about how it used to always confuse me when I would hear people say like, Oh, I beat cancer or they beat cancer. And, and I always was like, isn't it just like a matter of if your doctor, if, if it was physically capable of happening and your doctor cured, cured you, what do you mean you beat cancer? Like, what did you do? And, but now the more I, I learn about these things and see how much of your attitude and mindset, obviously it's not everything, but like can contribute so much to the healing process and giving you better odds when, you know, inside you you still believe and you still want to live. Like it's such a a powerful thing and you see how it's aided the rest of her life. And, and she's just such a proactive person. I love, I love being around those energies, proactive people that just want to be their best and, and affect the world and, and, and discover things and create things. And she's doing all that and she's, you know, running everything and doing so many different types of work. And it seems like she's having a lot of fun and it seems like she has figured out how to enjoy life. Yeah. And, you know, like she's definitely living the, I think the model example of how to be successful in this business, because it's like, you know, she talks about, oh, you have to arrange this for a a horn section for sting. Okay. Well, I've never arranged, but okay, here we go. Or like, Hey, you got to play keyboards on this or Hey, you have to sing. It's like, Oh, I'm not trained to sing, but here we go. I'll I'll give it a go. And it's like, say yes. And then figure it out. I've talked to a lot of old older New York, New York freelancers who got their big break by saying yes. And then, and then saying, okay, well I have to play tuba. Hmm. I don't own a tuba and I've never played one. Okay. We'll figure this out. And that that's how they start going. You know? Yeah. I, I, think played, I so played important. euphonium on a, on a 
PBS special documentary about Abraham Lincoln for that exact reason. <laughs> exactly. Do you play Euphonium? Sure. When is it again? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So Carol, I mean, it's, it's so, it, it was such an odd interview for our platform because so much of it was spent around her, her health issues, um, in her being sick, but it, in a way that's what we needed to hear because that's what made her, her is like her work ethic and her outlook on life and the profession made her be able to face this challenge of being so sick and overcome and not let anything really drop while she did it. I mean, she was still out there working harder than anyone. I mean, it's crazy what she was doing. I, I, I don't understand how you do that being healthy. Seriously. I, I love that this, I mean, I think it fit perfectly because yes, this is a trombone podcast, but it's, it's more how we describe it. It's universal stories of all these things told through the eyes of trombonists. So she's a trombonist, but the, the podcast wasn't about the trombone. It wasn't, you know, we talked about it a little bit, but it was about her life, you know, I mean, that's what I love doing because everyone has a story. That's what we've, we've learned through doing this. Everyone has a story. Everyone has experienced things good and bad, and we can learn and, empathize with all of them and it's it's so cool and i just feel lucky we get to do this i'm so excited about this season first of all this is our first cohesive season we're going to be consistent it's going to be 15 episodes and putting out on a i think around bi-weekly two to three week uh basis and we've we already have a lot of guests lined up and we're just so excited and i think it's going to be the best best season we've ever had well technically our first season but because we've thought about I don't think we've ever really thought about yeah. uh, trying to put together a season with the idea of like balance and cohesiveness and trying to just like get, you know, a, wi a wide variety of people on and thinking far ahead for that. I think it's going to make it a really enjoyable listening experience and, and for us, an interview experience, getting to talk to people who come at the trombone from, you know, different places and different styles and, you know, different age groups and all sorts of stuff. I think that all that is going to make it really fun. Lots of audio goodness. And they get to hear those Nick Schwartz based voice tones. The, the, Seba the Sebastian, Sebastian raspy tones. <laughs> Raspitons. Raspitons. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and of course... You can watch videos of all of our podcasts on Patreon, plus a million other special features and classes. And we have side podcasts where we, we have a podcast called Now Here in Canada One, where we talk about, we just interview people about their audition successes and their process, how they prepared, how the audition went, everything they were thinking during it. It's been super fun. I've gotten to talk to a lot of interesting people. And I'm doing another one called Meet Your Maker, where I talk to craftsmen, talk to Christian Griego. I've talked to Peter Pickett, uh, Alexis Smith, and just, just breaking down how the processes of and just nerding out on equipment. And we have a lot of other special classes and trombone tips and, and things that we do, excerpts of the month with Nick and um, it's really fun and we're really enjoying doing it. So, so go, go sign up on patreon.com slash trombone retreat if you're interested. If you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend and subscribe everywhere you download your podcasts. Also, please consider being a patron on patreon.com slash trombone retreat and also leaving us a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify as it helps us out quite a bit.
A special thanks to our friends at Houghton Horns for supporting this podcast season. Make sure to visit them at HoughtonHorns.com. Follow us at Trombone Retreat on all the social medias and our website, TromboneRetreat.com, where you can also join our mailing list. Follow Nick on Instagram at BassTrombone444 and myself at JS.Vera. And if you're feeling antsy. And you're pantsy. Go meet with your friend Nancy. <laughs> oh, this is just a rhyme. Oh, that's a new challenge. Uh, Nancy, Nancy, Pantsy, Antsy. What else rhymes with that? Shit. Everyone listening is like throwing out a million things that rhymes right now. Take Go yourself apply a for some chanty. Go apply for some Grancies. Take that little chanty. Okay, we can. We- Get off the rhymes. This is never going to end. Why don't you go ahead and retreat yourself? <laughs> okay. <laughs> just, just stuck the landing. Yep. Nailed it.